This is Common Threads, an interfaith dialogue. Fred Stella, President of the Interfaith Dialogue Association. Welcome to another edition of Common Threads. Those of you who have been listening through all of the Trump years will recall that we presented several shows that focused on the various aspects of religion that were a part of those dark times. And there was always plenty to talk about. Well, though that toxic presidency is now done, the modern robber baron narcissist who is Donald Trump is not out of the picture and he has left a slimy trail of supporters who continue to work for a vision of this country that should still concern us all. Perhaps one of the strongest movements that is gaining steam without Trump at the helm is that of Christian nationalism, the political viewpoint that this isn't really a secular nation, but one founded on Christian principles, and one that should in some fashion hold the Bible above the Constitution in matters of law. Today we have with us someone who knows that movement very well. He's a self-described evangelical Christian, and he spent time in what we might call the belly of the beast, Nathaniel Manderson. He recently wrote an article for Salon.com called, I'm an Evangelical Minister. Christian nationalism is a bizarre misogynist fantasy and totally unchristian. As you can imagine, just the title alone had me tracking him down to join us here on Common Threads. Fortunately for us, he works cheap, so he's with us today. Let me tell you a little bit about Nate. He is an ordained Baptist minister, a seminary graduate from Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary in Boston, and he finished his undergraduate degree from the University of Massachusetts. Aside from his ministerial work, He's had multiple day jobs that we'll discuss in a moment, and he is also a former U.S. presidential candidate. I believe the very first one we've ever had on Common Threads. So let us welcome to Common Threads, Nathaniel Manderson. Hello, Nate. Hey, hello, Fred. It's uh, my pleasure to be on your show. I I, uh, really appreciate you reaching out to me and uh, and, uh, having me be able to come out and speak out about some topics that I feel I'm quite passionately about. That's what we do around here. So uh, tell us a little bit more about yourself and your, your church ministry. Uh, I, I mentioned that you, you have other jobs uh, aside from being a minister. Let's just talk about that. Well, even when I was going and feeling a, kind of a sense of calling into ministry, um, I often was looking to to kind of have it as a, you know, help these kind of old New England churches which were struggling and uh, trying to bring some uh, life back into them. uh, So those churches could never really afford a full-time minister. So I often uh, took hold of a a full-time job. I have passion for education. I I work predominantly with first-generation low-income students for more than 20 years, uh, basically as a career advisor, life coach, uh, kind of a guidance counselor, helping them get into college or find their own career path or even reclaiming their path through the community college system. So I, my day work was always about uh, some passionate work that I kind of saw just as much a part of my ministry as anything. And then I took hold of some churches along the way, did some mission work down in Haiti, 
Um, uh, but all the while, I was I the Gordon Conwell was uh, extremely conservative, although they don't really promote that in the area because they're in Massachusetts and they don't want everyone to know <laughs> that they are <laughs> as conservative as they are because uh, they you know there might be who knows what might happen around Massachusetts. Um, so either way, uh, I went I attended Gordon Conwell. Uh, but the whole time kind of holding on to my liberal roots uh, and uh, continuing that path in my professional and ministerial uh, career. And do you still consider yourself a part of the working poor? <laughs> well, I mean, working poor, maybe not so much. Uh, working class, for sure. I, I've, uh, I certainly have had been a part of that. Uh, my father was a plumber, uh, a single parent household. It was... We had to move a lot, most and uh, mostly for financial reasons. It was it was uh, at least financially kind of a difficult upbringing. Um, but personally, I mean, we were very close, a knit family. And then I struggled as well as an adult. Uh, I was often taking on two, even a third job. Uh, sometimes working overnight jobs at FedEx or delivering newspapers. Well, into my late thirties, it's often been a struggle. Uh, I kind of see myself coming out of it a little bit sometimes. Uh, but I would say certainly I would define myself as working class. And you have a church, right? You, you are the senior minister of a church, is that correct? No, not anymore. Oh. I, I, I had two different churches. Uh, one I was with for a few years. We kind of rebuilt that church and, and ended up, I was the pastor uh, at that church, First Baptist of Bristol, Rhode Island. And that really went well, and I enjoyed my time there. And then I took on another church, and I had a couple difficulties there. We started to shift our theology. Um, it kind of coincided with, uh, on some level, coincided with my daughter coming out to me as uh, as gay. And I promised her she would never walk into my church unless there was a, fl- a rainbow flag outside of it. And so the next Sunday we had one up, and I lost half my church. <laughs> uh so that was kind of a, and then a little bit of time after that, I decided to kind of part ways uh, from that kind of element of formal ministry. I still am open to the possibility of returning to ministry, but it would have to, you know, be the right fit that I really felt God was calling, kind of putting to a situation that felt comfortable and and uh, true to uh, my Christian theology. Sure, sure. Now, you identify as an evangelical, and I know that. Unlike unlike the stereotype, just because you're evangelical doesn't mean that you are conservative politically. Uh, uh, I'm assuming no. that you might identify with the uh, Jim Wallace kind of evangelical. However, when it, you know if you're talking about socio-political matters, that's one thing. But but theology is a whole different thing. So I'm curious if if uh, let's say Jerry Falwell Sr. was alive. And you and he engaged in a conversation, and you kept it 100% theological. No social issues, no political issues, simply theological. How close would you guys align, do you think, knowing what we know? I mean, he's not here to you know, say one way or the other, but we, we kind of sort of know where he, where he lands. <laughs> well, if we didn't touch on this, it's interesting with him because— it's difficult to think of his theology without thinking of these social issues, because uh, so much of it was, uh, you know, he kind of connected into everything that he that he brought out, at least publicly. Uh, no, I don't think we would be on the same page in a lot of ways. 
their whole approach to the scripture is is done in a way that kind of uses the word as like a sword instead of a shield to protect or or to use it to lift people up uh, to promote forgiveness and grace and mercy. It was much more about uh, making it making the pathway into heaven as small and as narrow as humanly possible, so that no one could actually get in, and probably not even himself, if he really evaluated <laughs> how he approaches theology. And I think, I mean, I, I mean, honestly, I mean, I think he was. Uh, I'm pretty confident he was divorced, and and if he really followed through with his his theology, he doesn't make it either. Um, so. No, I, I don't. I didn't appreciate that almost any element of his, his approach. Out now, when I say like evangelical, I kind of do that because, on some level, I'm trying to reclaim the word. Uh, I don't really believe in anything that comes out of the evangelical movement, uh, but I do hold that the Bible is divinely inspired. Uh, but you know, maybe we can take a look at some of these stories and you combine it with what is coming out of the scientific community, and then we can start using our brains a little bit. And uh, make up our and make some determining de- uh, uh, determine uh, what is more of allegory and what is how it really happened. And uh, Falwell and his type would never uh, even explore that kind of a path. The Earth is a few thousand years old, and that's it. And then they don't even want to hear anything else. Uh, oh. So no, I, I I wouldn't I wouldn't attribute myself to his, to his viewpoints in a, a bunch of ways. When you were uh, connected with a church, a uh, First Baptist, uh, a few years yep. ago, did you feel like you had a community of people, uh, and your socio-political and theological understandings resonated with theirs for the most part? Uh, I would say it was kind of the church in Rhode Island was fairly split. I would say uh, on the political areas. My pastoring was mostly about kind of day-in, day-out life. Uh, you know, not necessarily what we're going to do when we go into the voting group, but what we're going to do with the rest of our the days of the year. Uh, you know, how are we going to deal with the aunt that drives us crazy? How are we going to, you know, keep our marriages together, be a good father and a, a, good, a good mom and a good son? And this little day-in, day-out operation of what it is to be alive finding purpose and meaning in that. So most of my conversation was able to kind of from some of that, the political stuff, and just pastor the people and love them and uh, create a structure that people felt welcomed and that there, this could be a place where all could feel loved and forgiven and that we were truly a family. And that was really what I was trying to build there. So I felt a good, good connection to many of them. Uh, one of the stories I used in one of my articles, which was always fascinating to me, is that one probably my favorite family that just was as loving of a family as I could have come across one weekend told me they were going down to DC to go to a Glenn Beck rally. Uh, this is years ago. And I thought Glenn Beck has got to be one of the craziest people I've ever even heard of. <laughs> I can't believe this family's going down there and, and talking to Glenn Beck or wanting to watch and pay money and travel. And they, I, but I still had such an, uh, a fond fondness for this family. Um, they're just wonderful kids, wonderful marriage. And yet they were kind of, so it was this kind of weird thing that I would, I would try to, uh, where they understood forgiveness and grace and mercy in their family. And yet when they would go into the voting booth, they would practice something quite the opposite. Um, so I, I was always trying to 
kind of have that bridge get crossed. It's not always that easy. But the one day at a time kind of thing was my approach and just trying to minister and pastor these people. Uh, everyone needs, you know, some encouragement and kick in the pants and a pat on the back. And so I, I've always tried to live by that when, when I pastored. So I, I found a good fellowship there. Uh, you know, you're a pastor, so you're always a little removed, but um, it, but it was still, there was some really wonderful people there, and I really did enjoy my time. And did you have uh, connections with pastors of more mainstream or even liberal denominations, such as the Episcopalians and Methodists and UCC and all of that? Well, the ABC, so my my denomination that ordained me is American Baptist Churches, so ABC USA. So that is, that would easily be, be the very liberal denomination. Now, they're not willing to make large decisions around, let's say, gay marriage, because I think they know that the Southern American Baptist churches will reject them, and then the Northern, more progressive ones will accept them, and they'll lose half their churches. So ABC has kind of stayed out of it and kind of left it the way government would like leave it up to the state. So they left it up to the individual churches to make decisions around these more hot. And, um, but in, in a place like Rhode Island, Massachusetts, it's extremely liberal. There's, uh, gay ministers and, you know, uh, all kinds of, uh, of viewpoints coming out of the American Baptist churches at this point, at least in the Northern more progressive cities. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Common Threads here on WGVU. I'm Fred Stella, and with me today is Reverend Nathaniel Manderson. He's the author of an article at Salon.com entitled, I'm an Evangelical Minister. Christian nationalism is a bizarre misogynist fantasy and totally unchristian. Uh, So, uh, Nate, uh, let me ask you this, uh, because... A lot of your article does have to deal with misogyny. And you said in the article that in seminary it was hard not to notice misogyny. And I'm wondering, when you were in seminary, did you know that it was misogyny? Did, would you be able to call it misogyny? Or was it just sort of God's order of things or just something that <laughs> you had to deal with? No, it was, it was clear to me. Uh, and I would go and have coffee with my fellow students and, you know, most of them were married and it was a remarkable thing because there's this very obscure passage within the scripture about submission, um, where, you know, women are to submit to their husbands as head of the household, as Christ as head of the church. And it, for one piece of scripture, it was surprising how often that scripture was discussed. It's almost this was the one thing like they all wanted to hang it on their doorposts in front of every household that they were ever going to live in to make sure that this was there was clear rules in the family and that anything that was against this that considered it a marriage should be kind of equally uh, the power to be distributed equally or it's a partnership or fifty fifty was was almost blasphemy and and uh, was something that could destroy the family, which is why there was this kind of bizarre hatred of feminism in this for women to pursue a life of you know being able to say words like no or <laughs> like i want to have a career education and and not just be a wife and a mother and it was clearly a threat to them and i would listen to these young men talk about it and uh the women were definitely uh, uh reacted in in the appropriate biblical way apparently where they would show their submission 
and the men had got to clear the got to make all the decisions for the marriage and where they were going to live and what they were going to do and the final say was always the men no it was it was clear and they and using that scripture to do it i mean it, it i mean there's also a piece right before it that talks about couples submitting to each other uh, but somehow they overlook that um, and just focus on the attention where they can use it to control their families, their wives, and their lives. And um, no, it, it was it was hard not to notice uh, what was going on there. So it wasn't just a nominal, uh, a, a sort of a nod to that scripture. It was genuinely lived out in their marriages. It was, uh, yeah, absolutely. Which is when I when I thought coming along. And people were pretending that the evangelicals were holding their nose and voting for him. I knew that that was a lie. I knew that they were actually excited by a man that would talk to women this way, that would be able to, you know, uh, disrespect them, brag about sexually assaulting them. <laughs> I mean, he, he in every way. And I knew that these men were borderline excited by a man like this because they saw themselves losing control of their of their lives and losing control of women. Uh, certainly the abortion thing I could talk about forever about that, but uh, ever since the seventies, they could feel it slipping out of their hands. And there, here comes Trump saying, no, we can get control again. And then you saw him in his personal life also kind of having this dominance. And I knew that they were going to, they were going to support him more than any candidate that had ever come along. And they certainly did. And still do. Yeah, yes. The numbers course. are even worse now. I, I, I'm aware of that. Uh, that's one of the reasons I had you on. Um, I, I, I want to get more into the, uh, the, uh, the Trumpian cult in, in a little bit, but I have a couple of other questions. Uh, going sure. just back to misogyny in, in general, you said you heard one minister say that women must call men Lord. Uh, and, and that blew me away. You've never heard that, have you, really? Oh no, I did. Tony Evans. I was listening to. Uh, I was listening to. Uh, I have a tendency to listen to some of the evangelical radio stations just because I'm always curious where they're coming from. Sure, I do too. And uh, <laughs> and uh, and actually, I had heard this sermon, and he and it was directed toward the women in the church uh, that they should be referring to their husbands as Lord. That it is time to go home. And properly respect your husbands, and that this is there's a huge issue with um, marriages falling apart because women forget their roles, and that if we are to call Christ Lord, then you are to call your husbands Lord, and and to refer them to them as such. And when I wrote the piece, I I felt a little bit like maybe I had I don't know unfairly represented. The argument until I then listened to John MacArthur, who was on the, the following day, and he actually started to talk about how if a woman in a marriage, a wife, decides to turn away from her husband, like her husband wants to be with her sexually, and she says no, that that is somehow the seed of the, he said, this is the seed of the devil for a woman to say no, that it's almost not mm. even in her rights to say no. And because if she does, because men are like out of control, apparently they're going to get addicted to porn, sleep with all kinds of women because their wife was the one that sent them down this evil path. And of course, they are being controlled by the devil by saying no to uh, 
having sex with their husbands. You, you so, know, no, the, then I started to feel like it wasn't it wasn't unfair for me to represent it this way because it is even worse than I have shown it in my article. It, it's it's on the books in in Roman Catholicism. It is actually on the books. The way it's worded, neither partner can say no to the other. But clearly, clearly, that was written <laughs> with guys in mind, and and for the exact same reason that that if you're the one to cause your partner to sin by using porn or uh, you know going to a prostitute, whatever whatever it is, then yeah, you it's on you. That that's absolutely right. fascinating to me. Absolutely, uh, uh, yeah, and and it's still on the books. They're 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 not <laughs> they're not calling that one off. Uh, uh, no, they're they're not going to. Yeah, absolutely not. Yeah, yeah. Um, you you also talked about going back to your seminary days about uh, the sessions you used to have with with guys where they would talk about what it should be like to be a man, and they would mm. talk about manly things. And you would probably say, well, I've got a manly name. I'm not Anderson. I'm Manderson, right? I mean, so <laughs> right. I'm sure I'm sure that that uh, gave you a little bit of street cred. Um, it did, yeah. Yeah. Okay, but then you said that uh, when women would get together, they would talk about what it's like to be a godly woman, and one element of that is sexual purity. And I'm curious if sexual purity was also part of being a man in in those sessions. You know, I mean, it was mentioned, but it was not emphasized. It was clearly more emphasized in the discussions that the women were having. Uh, yeah, at least that was reported back to me by my wife at the time. And that that was the, it was much more heavily emphasized. And not just the, the sexual purity, but also when we talk about roles and them being submissive, it also meant women's work. I mean, they would talk about, like, the nurturing piece meant cleaning the house. It meant taking care of everything that, you know, traditionally, maybe in the 50s, what a wife would do. And the men did not partake in any of that. In fact, a lot of the women would be surprised when my, my wife would tell them that I would do laundry and clean up and, you know, per, you know do, uh, cook and do all these different things. And they were like, no, no none of our, our men do that. And, uh, and not only did they not do that, none of them had jobs. All they did was study. I always worked while I was in school and I was still helping out. And they were, it was like shocking to these women that I would be, they, that there was a man that was willing to do anything that was considered women's work. So the roles were somehow biblically defined that cleaning up around the house was, you know, ordained by God for women to do. Uh, it was really, um, unusual, but, the, but to get back to your original question, yeah, no, it was it was it was kind of discussed, but it was almost like we don't really have control. Uh, there was this kind of odd message that men are just kind of, you know, controlled by a certain part of our body, and that we don't we can't really stop that from happening. And it's up to our wives to kind of keep us under wraps. If you so. if there was a single man in the in that group though, and and he was involved with. Uh, women in in less than a chaste way, but he, he wouldn't be he wouldn't be accepted, right? If if someone was overtly, uh, you know, single and dating and involved in intimate relationships outside of marriage, he would still have to deal with some criticism. Am I correct? 
Oh, one hundred percent. Yeah, he would be. He would be. Uh, he would be brought in. I mean, they would. They would discipline. Uh, you know, and they they'd go by the order. Of, uh, you know what the Bible has kind of taught. You know, one person goes and talks to him, and if he's not willing to listen, then you bring in a second person and a group, and then if he's still not willing to listen, then you kick him out of the group. Um, so, absolutely, you know, he if a, if a man was outwardly uh, partaking in that kind of relationship, not being married. Uh, he was definitely someone that, I mean, they might even find a way to get him out of seminary if he was at seminary. They would they would have no tolerance for it. Well, I, th- I would assume that that would, uh, th- I would think that would be like the first thing that would happen. Not quite, though, huh? No, I mean, they, there's like a biblical order to the whole discipline thing. And so they would they would follow that to see if they could bring him back. And uh, I mean, I, there wasn't a whole lot of that. I mean, the single men that were there, there was like all kind of support groups to make sure they didn't get like addicted to pornography or you know whatever it was it was it was it was discussed uh, openly i mean there was and there was even other uh, discussions around um just pastors and and how often pastors uh cheat on their wives and that there was an actual statistic cheat on their wives on monday right <laughs> Uh, the the day after the service, for some reason, men are very weak that day, and so we have these discussions <laughs> about, you know, like how to how to maybe don't go to the office on Monday. It was absurd. I, it really felt like you were on another planet. I mean, I went to a state school, and we talked about things in a much more honest way than I ever talked with anybody at seminary. And you know, it is it's almost there's a good bit history to it. I mean, the, the Pharisees were obsessed with sex too, and uh, and so were these evangelicals. It's always something about sex with these guys they're just they're just crazy <laughs> <laughs> you know something uh we are down to the wire for this episode of common threads uh nathaniel and we haven't gotten to the meat of your article but i promise you next week we will but this has all been a very good prologue for the discussion we're going to have then so i'm hoping you'll be able to join us i, I i'm looking forward to it You've been listening to Common Threads here on WGVU. I'm Fred Stella, and with me today has been Reverend Nathaniel Manderson, and he recently wrote an article for Salon.com, which you can access. It's titled, I'm an Evangelical Minister. Christian Nationalism is a Bizarre Misogynist Fantasy and Totally Unchristian. So join us again next week here on WGVU-FM. Common Threads is a production of WGVU in cooperation with the Interfaith Dialogue Association. The views and opinions expressed are not necessarily those of the station, its underwriters, or Grand Valley State University. In many cases, the participants on this program represent themselves and may not be designated spokespeople for the faiths they represent. Send questions and comments by email through our website www.interfaithdialogueassociation.org Thank you for listening and join us again next week for another edition of Common Threads. This is Common Threads, an interfaith dialogue.
I'm Fred Stella, president of the Interfaith Dialogue Association. Welcome to another edition of Common Threads. Last week, we began our conversation with Reverend Nathaniel Manderson. He is the author of an article that you can find on Salon.com entitled, I'm an Evangelical Minister. Christian nationalism is a bizarre misogynist fantasy and totally unchristian. I guess you can probably guess what we're going to talk about today. A few things about our guest. He is an ordained Baptist minister, a seminary graduate of Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary in Boston. He finished his undergraduate degree from the University of Massachusetts. And aside from his ministerial work, he's had multiple day jobs that uh, we will continue to discuss. And he's also a former U.S. presidential candidate. So once again, let us welcome to Common Threads, Nathaniel Manderson. Hello, Nate. Hello, Fred. Thank you again for having me back. Certainly, certainly. So last week, that sort of served as a prologue for what we're going to talk about today. Uh, So last week we talked about the culture that raised you and educated you and that you were a part of, but it seems that you were not entirely a part of it. You, when you were going to seminary, from what I gathered last week, you had a different worldview than many of your colleagues, even back then. It's not like, uh, again, from what I gathered, that you had this powerful transformation at some point and said, hey, I was, I was this way, now I'm going to completely go this other way. Right? Am I am I correct that you already had a, a progressive streak in you? You always looked uh, uh, in that direction. Am I, am I right? No, you're no, absolutely. Uh, it, I was always uh, very liberal. I mean, when I was in college at a state college, um, uh, I used to joke with the woman that ran back then. It was called the women's uh, women's center, and that I was the only football player to ever volunteer at the women's center. <laughs> Uh, I I, uh, I always sought out uh, uh, women's studies courses. I, I was always seeking the, the liberal philosophies in any way I could uh, in my undergrad. So when I was choosing a seminary, I actually deliberately chose a conservative seminary. Uh, I could have gone to some more liberal institutions, but I kind of felt like, well, I need to kind of challenge myself, push myself, be surrounded by people that disagree with me. Uh, so I chose it deliberately. Uh, because I, I felt like I needed to, a little more theological foundation, and, and I knew Gordon Conwell could offer me that, but I also knew that socially and politically I would feel quite isolated, which I did. Uh, but it was it was worth it, and I think it was the right decision. And uh, it was fascinating to observe and to be around it and to hear some of the Kind of some of the beginnings the, uh, of, of some of their philosophies that I consider to be, uh, well, against the, the Scriptures. We're talking about uh, the the Christian nationalist movement today because there is such a strong resurgence, especially since the days of Trump. But it's kind of sort of been around for a much longer time. I think right now there's just a certain pride, there's a a, a spurt of growth of numbers uh, in the movement, and I'm curious— is there a difference between what we call Christian nationalism and Christian triumphalism? Uh, I would say I would say no. I think I think they are definitely. Uh, I, I mean, this, this when you say it's been around for a long time, I mean I absolutely agree with you. I mean, 
even uh, Reagan was really showed, uh, I, in some ways, Reagan showed Trump how to do this uh, by connecting to the evangelical church and, and bringing back this kind of older version of what America will look like, this kind of traditional, you know, picket fence and perfect families and all this kind of stuff that they could go back to. And, and if you even go back more, uh, you know, you, during the times of prohibition, you know, the alcohol was part of the devil, and we got to get back to our Christian roots, and everything was about this kind of fantasy of what it meant to be a Christian nation, and that if we ever started to turn our backs on it, that God would release, you know, some kind of damnation, and and uh, and somehow back when owned slaves, that wasn't evil enough <laughs> for God to lift off his seal of approval. Uh, when we wouldn't let women vote, that wasn't evil enough, apparently. But then we want two men to get married, and then, you know, everybody starts losing their mind. And um, and that's when God's going to release his hold and, and let all kinds of terrible things happen to this country. So, no, I believe that they very much are trying to reclaim this, this country to be something that it never really was. Um, and it, 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 that kind of fantasy is attractive uh, to these evangelicals. They believe in this kind of old-school way of things because they weren't there, and they only read the history that they want to read that allows them to hold on to this bizarre viewpoint of, of how this country was formed and what was happening uh, 200 years ago and 100 years ago or 50 years ago. Uh, but it's a nice idea when someone says, remember back in the day before there were cell phones and everybody was a neighbor. And it's like, yeah, I don't think that really ever existed. <laughs> uh, I mean, maybe for some white people it did, but for the anyone that was on the wrong side of that, uh, it was not a, an ideal, uh, an idealistic view of America. You know, last week you mentioned that one of the reasons that uh, Trump got such strong evangelical support is because of his misogyny, his macho swagger, and all of that. That uh, you you don't believe that many of them, as the saying goes, held their nose and voted for Trump. You 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 thought there was a little bit of little bit of excitement on that part. Uh, and I've always said said uh, another thing, that the evangelicals chose Trump, or at least they they chose him and they continued to support him and continue to support him to this day because he kept his promises, unlike in a manner that just blew Reagan, Bush one and Bush two away. Am, am I correct that he he said he was going to do this, that, and the other, and Lo and behold, he did. Look at the Supreme Court. We, he, he, he gave on us on a silver platter. Look at uh, look at all of the uh, the the uh, uh, acts of power, the the presidential acts of power that he declared. It it all fit. Why wouldn't they love him? Why wouldn't they just say, "Well, what he does behind closed doors is none of my business." Your thoughts? No, I I agree. There he he has, and of course he has because he doesn't really care. He just knows he everything he has done is always to his to his group. Uh, no matter who's in front of him, whatever media is in front of him, whatever group is in front of him, he he has never lost sight that he holds on and just talks to his group. And so, yeah, he did. He did. He he just didn't matter to him. Whatever was going to keep these people happy, he was going to do. I don't know whether he believed in doing it or not. I just knew know that he knew how to hold on to their votes. And, I mean, even the whole thing of, uh, you know, every president went into office claiming that maybe we'll, 
will we'll make the capital of Israel and Jerusalem, and none of them did it once they got into office because they knew what would eventually happen until Trump did. And that is a major evangelical point because they consider this kind of a connection to the end of days, and somehow if we do this, it's going to bring Christ back. It, I could really go down the road with that one. It is a, it is a bizarre kind of hope that these evangelicals have, that, and... Um, and, and that's all connected. So yeah, he did do that, and they like to say it and talk about it. But I, and he, and, and you know, but they also then hide and say, well, whatever he does, he does. And yeah, I don't like it that he's that way, but I don't believe them. I think they like what he does behind closed doors. I think they like that he's a bully. I think they like that he uh, talks down to you know. Uh, Megan Kelly asked him a question, and she he said, "What is it? You're like time of the month? Like that's insane that a presidential candidate can say something like that and actually go up in the points, and that the evangelicals wouldn't immediately turn their back on him. I, I mean, his opening speech about calling a Mexican rapist and and like how was that not enough for evangelicals to see this man as not a man that is going to carry on uh, a message about Christ." Um, but it didn't matter. They liked those kinds of things. They liked his nationalist view that we weren't going to care about anyone outside our borders. They liked the wall, all of it. And it, it, it almost had nothing to do with Christianity at all. It was some other uh, uh, version of America that they were trying to hold on to. So, no, I, I just don't buy it. They, I, think they, I don't think they held their nose. I think they breathed him in deeply and enjoyed every second of it. And I think they still do, and they can't wait for him to come back. You obviously say you agree with uh, the notion that this is not a Christian nation, but don't you agree that this argument has been going on since our inception as a country, that that even the Founding Fathers argued about this? Well, oh, of course. I mean, you know, I, I, have, I have no problem that the, the Christian faith is very much there, and I use it when I think of Christian faith and how I would bring it into the political world or the public square, I see it as, you know, like, let's think about healing the sick, and and so maybe there's a possibility of creating universal health care. Let's think about welcoming the foreigner and finding a better pathway for, for citizenship for the people that are here. I, you know, I can, I can definitely see that the Scripture can be very useful and, and has been connected to America since since its inception, of course, uh, it's just when it's used to keep people enslaved, when it's used to keep from the voting booth, when it was used to practically commit genocide against the indigenous people. I mean, at every level, the Bible has been used to both do things to enslave people and to free them. And it was really just, you know, even the Civil War, there was the Underground Railroad was typically done with, you know, liberally minded ministers that were, you know, using their churches. And then, of course, there was a whole theology to condemn, to, to keep people enslaved. Uh, so it's always there, and it has been weaponized in, in terrible ways, and has also been used to set people free. Um, it really is dependent on that sort to, um, and what their worldview is. Uh, but yeah, it's certainly been, been there since the beginning and continues to today. Uh, it's just right now the voices from the, from the right are so loud and I think the voices on the left need to be equally as loud and start to call them out for that they are so far removed from proper Christianity or the man of Christ that we, we, that we consider to worship. Uh, it's, it, it needs to be exposed. They need to be exposed.
and uh, return, we can return it back to what I consider to be a beautiful faith. Uh, it can it help me in my life, and it, and it could help this country. There are various reasons for panic within the Christian nationalist movement, such as same-sex marriage and uh, specifically other gender-related issues. Uh, last week you talked about how uh, you know they do focus on issues regarding sex. I'm curious, what about divorce? How, uh, do they have any concern for the divorce rate in America? And what would they do about it politically if, if there is a political answer to divorce? Ban it? Well, I think, I think they're, in, they're in a little trouble with the divorce thing because their rate of divorce is higher uh, within the churches than outside the church. So they've had to amend their theology based on who's actually in their church. I mean, that's why they could continue to reject uh, you know, anyone from the LBGTQ population, because they're not going to their church, so they easily can condemn them. But a lot of people that are divorced are in their churches. So they've had to kind of circumvent that. Uh, but I do know who they blame, uh, which has always kind of been a fascinating thing to me. I've heard them talk about abortion, and there's actually nothing in the Bible about it, but that's okay. James Dobson himself in the 70s said there was nothing in the Bible about it. Uh, and the and the homosexuality thing, but there was always this language around feminism, and they t- just spoke about how the feminists are destroying everything, and it really meant their marriages, and and what they were kind of blaming the divorce rate on is feminism. Uh, once women decided to be that they wanted to work or have a career or an opinion of their own or. <laughs> be able to make uh, decisions without their husband's approval, they feel like that was the beginning of the end, and that the divorce rate, the way it is now, is because of that. They're not taking responsibility for it within their own churches, in spite of the fact, as I said, that the divorce rate's worse. But no, they've they've been very careful about the divorce thing, because so many of them are. Uh, I don't know what they could do politically uh, to, to change it. I mean, the, our tax code already rewards people that are married anyway. Um, so I, I, I don't know what they would do, but I, but who they blame for it. And it's not themselves. <laughs> if you're just joining us, you're listening to common threads here on WGVU. I'm Fred Stella. Nathaniel Manderson is our guest. He is the author of a salon.com article entitled, I'm an evangelical minister. Christian nationalism is a bizarre misogynist fantasy and totally unchristian. And here's something too. Birth control. Now, I I remember, I distinctly remember a debate. Um, I think it was a, a Republican primary debate, not not uh, in the general. And Mitt Romney was asked about birth control, and he looked at the 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 person who asked the question like uh, he had three heads. It's like. Um, you know, why don't you ask me about barber shops? What, why are you asking me about, why are you asking me about birth control? He had no clue. And then lo and behold, just a few years later, uh, uh, we had this whole brouhaha about birth control and, uh, um, religious organizations, Hobby Lobby and all of this stuff. Mm. Okay. Do you know where they are on birth control? I do know that there are a couple of denominations of the, the so-called quiverful 
uh, uh, movement where uh, families are just expected to be as large as possible because essentially you're procreating for God's army, something like that. And I actually, mm. I actually knew a, a couple, um, and they were they were on that track. I don't know. I think they had something like seven oh. kids, and then he abandons <laughs> the wife. Okay, go figure. So I'm I, I'm just curious. Are, are are you are you hearing anything about uh, birth control within the Christian nationalist movement? Uh, not as not as much, and I think there's a, I think there's a few reasons for that. Uh, I mean, there's still uh, some of that I still have heard. I, I taught for a year at a at a Catholic school, and that was still very much a part of what they were teaching. That this was still something that was on the same level as abortion to use birth control. Um, there are certainly uh, elements of the denomination, maybe within the Southern denomination, that are still holding on to that possibility. But I think the key word here is uh, where we could focus our attention is on control. That that they want to be the they. I think men, at least within the evangelical movement in this white in this nationalist movement, Christian nationalist movement, have feel, are feeling like they have lost control, and that women have the right to decide what happens to a life. I don't think they've ever quite gotten over this idea. Uh, they are making decisions about their own. Uh, about their own pathway, their own their their own careers, their own education, and they're trying to regain that control. And and all of the laws around abortion and birth control or, or any of these things is about regaining that. And 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 that's really where where they're they're lost. And it has nothing to do with the Bible. It has nothing to do with the scriptures. I've read it. I've read the book. It's not in there. You know, we don't have to control our women, and, and uh, but they really are trying to regain it and uh, have a uh, feeling like they've lost their families. Uh, but they lost their families. They made the choices that have created a, a situation where women don't want to be controlled by their husbands. It's ridiculous. Uh, it, it was never right to begin with, um, and it's not right now. And uh, Trump has offered them that possibility. Christian nationalism has somehow offered them this possibility, but uh, we're not going to go back there. In your article, you, you talk about some of the guys who love to be tough, and you, you <laughs> mention Sean Hannity, uh, uh, yes. Carlson, uh, and then you say Falwell Jr. before his fall. D- uh, I, I, I know something about a, a, a bizarre picture that he had, on, but did he really fall? Isn't isn't he still you know in the in the circle? I I don't think so. And in fact, he even had a recent piece where he almost talked about that he was kind of pretending about his own faith. Uh, I think he's I, maybe this is just speaking as a pastor. Uh, I think he's lost. And I think he's kind of poisonous for them to connect themselves to right now. Um, I mean, but he was definitely he at one of his graduation ceremonies. He he like pulled a gun out. He had packing heat, and, and, and this bizarre toughness. Uh, I mean, it's really some some oddity that uh, that is within the evangelical movement that I've never quite understood. I mean, I make that joke in my article that I I stopped caring about how tough I was after I graduated middle school. I, I don't really understand this desire to be seen this way, certainly not within the Christian world. I get that America is all about toughness and Captain America and 
all this fun. <laughs> I don't really get that either, but uh, certainly it shouldn't be found in the Christian Church, the way Christ carried himself, and the way Paul, uh, the first, uh, you know, uh, most of the writer of most of the New Testament carried himself. They were meek, uh, they were forgiving, they were loving, kind, gentle, nonviolent, peacemakers. It, it, there isn't, like, we're not waving our guns around. It, it doesn't make any sense. Um, but there certainly seems to connect to something in the evangelical, these evangelical men that want this Christian nationalism uh, to return as they, as they believe it could. Um, but yeah, there's, I don't understand it, but there's this, I don't know. I don't get it. <laughs> this, 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 so anyway, I double dog dared them to debate me because I thought I'd use their own language against them. Uh, I mean, I'm no tough guy, but I don't think they are either. No, and what I everything I've seen is they stay away from debates. Uh, the, the, you know, they, they just not not when they're dealing with somebody who might be their intellectual superior or anything like that. They they may find uh, some sort of straw man or someone who is weak or, or, or someone who just does not have any intellectual gravitas, and they can grind them into the ground just by yelling loud. But I, I don't right. I, I, I don't see a tremendous amount of of debate from that from that side. There, there might be uh, people from say the National Review end of conservatism. Yes, they will engage in an intellectual debate, but not not the Christian nationalists. Uh, that's that's just what I've seen. Or I've not no, seen. I, I agree because I think there's a I think there's an instinctual fear that they're wrong. And if it gets exposed in some way, and they get embarrassed or lose that debate in some way, that they could lose their argument. Uh, the best way to hold on to your argument is just not to listen to anybody else. Uh, don't read anything else. Just just listen to your own group and your own people and, and stay in your echo chamber. And so then they can hold on to as many ignorances as they, as they like. Um, so no, I, I agree. I think, there's a, I think it comes from a fear. Uh, that they know they're not standing on any kind of biblical foundation or even historical foundation for this country. Um, they're just standing on something that makes them feel good when they bed, that they're on the winning team, the righteous team, and the great evil that's happening in this country is something would not them. It has something to do outside the church. Uh, so, uh, yeah, they're not going to engage. <laughs> the, 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 um, I'm curious about this, and I've never read anything about it uh, but just tell me your experience. So when we talk about the social gospel, helping those who are in need of help, if you really want to find a lot written about that, you go into the Hebrew portion of the Bible, right? It's just chock sure. full, especially the books of the prophets. Uh, they just profoundly speak about the widow, the orphan, the foreigner, etc., etc. I'm I'm just curious do you think that one of the reasons that they bristle when we talk about the social gospel, about helping people as opposed to just being tough, could it be that because it is the Old Testament to them, that they look upon that language in a similar way to prohibitions of eating pork or wearing fab, uh, you know, two different blended fabrics or something, or, or not? No, I think this is much more personal. They, I think this is about, um, they, don't, they, they don't really believe, I mean, I've heard it compared 
talks about the social gospel, there's a there's a couple layers of this that they reject. One, they like to believe or try to pretend it's connected to to uh, socialism or communism, right? That any mention of it is is that, and that's the language they are using consistently in the evangelical movement. Any mention of the social gospel is about communism. So anything that is about help, helping the poor, healing the sick, welcoming the foreigner, uh, is this kind of political thing. And so that just gets filtered into all the churches, through all these ministers. And so now the, 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 the regular churchgoer in these evangelical churches will say that when you talk about social gospel. No, this is, this is like, um, this has kind of got squeezed out by Republicans who are posing as evangelical ministers. <laughs> and, 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 and they're afraid of things like universal health care, or they caught, or they bring about that fear into others. Um, and they just, they don't want to help. They don't want to change it as it is. They like uh, owning everything, having everything, and they don't want to do anything that could threaten that. And the social gospel does. And it's also racial. I know this could this could open up a whole other thing, but you know one of the things that happened with the moral majority in the early '80s and late '70s was them trying to reclaim Christianity from the left wing. Because Dr. King and what he did, that was on the left side of things. That was more on the Democratic Party. And then you had the Sunday school president in the late 70s with Carter. And then they needed to reclaim it. And they they found two issues that could motivate their base with abortion and gay marriage. And they had Reagan. And Reagan ignored the AIDS epidemic, did anything he want, they wanted him to do. He, he was also doing not as much as Trump did, but he certainly did a lot um, based on what uh, Falwell Sr. wanted him to do. So um, this kind of social gospel is them yet again ignoring the black church, um, and uh, and also uh, they've tried to make a connection to something that it has nothing to do with healing the sick. is not communism; it's healing the sick, <laughs> trying to provide good proper health care, equal, equal opportunity for people in this country. What this country was founded upon, and yet somehow they've made a bizarre connection to I, communism. I, I, I would, I, it would not surprise me then if they changed the term of church social to something else. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just in case. <laughs> uh, listen, uh, Nate, we are out of, out of time for this, uh, this uh, episode of Common Threads, but thank you so much for joining us today and last week as well. It was a great conversation. It was my pleasure, Fred. I, I, I really enjoyed it. And, uh, I, God bless you and your show. You've been listening to Common Threads here on WGVU. I'm Fred Stella. Nathaniel Manderson has been our guest. He is the author of the article you can find on Salon.com called I'm an Evangelical Minister. Christian Nationalism is a Bizarre Misogynist Fantasy and Totally Unchristian. Please join us again next week here on WGVU. Common Threads is a production of WGVU in cooperation with the Interfaith Dialogue Association. The views and opinions expressed are not necessarily those of the station, its underwriters, or Grand Valley State University. In many cases, the participants on this program represent themselves and may not be designated spokespeople for the faiths they represent. Send questions and comments by email through our website, www.interfaithdialogueassociation.org Thank you for listening and join us again next week for another edition of Common Threads. Common Threads